0: We're reading from Acts, chapter eight, verse one through eight. And Saul approved of his execution, and though there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they all were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, Samaria, except the apostles, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison now those who were scattered went about preaching the word Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed them the Christ the crowd with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when he heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lamed were healed So there was much joy in that city. Amen.
1: Our text has been read in our hearing. And as I was reading that text, a question came to my mind this week. And the question was, what comes first? Chicken or the egg? Now before you hurt yourself trying to figure that out, here's a more pressing question. What comes first? Persecution. Persecution. Or proclamation? What comes first? The persecution or the proclamation? Logically speaking, we might tend to think that the proclamation comes first. That after the proclamation comes the a persecution. And, and logically speaking, that probably would be true. But understand that in reading the scriptures and indeed experientially oftentimes, um, They go hand in hand. There comes the proclamation. There comes the persecution. But as the persecution comes, so does two more proclamation. And the cycle goes on from Jesus in the gospel to the disciples in Acts. Wherever there was persecution, there was proclamation. But wherever there was proclamation, there was persecution. And it goes on and on and on in a cycle continues. Proclamation, persecution. Proclamation, persecution. Persecution, preaching, faithful preaching of the gospel which breeds more persecution and persecution which causes Christians to preach more faithfully and proclaim the word. And the cycle continues. Over and over again. And this is what we see in our text this morning. As we have seen Throughout the book of Acts, as we have walked through the book of Acts, we have seen preaching, proclamation, persecution, persecution, preaching, and proclamation. And this is what Jesus said would happen. The only Christians were called followers of the way. They were called followers of the way because Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They took that literally, and so early Christians became known as those who are followers of the way. And what is the way? Well, the way of Christ, beloved, is the way of suffering. It's the way of persecution. That's the way. This is what Jesus promised, did he not? He tells us in in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 25 that to follow Christ, you must be willing to lose your life. It happens when you become a follower of the way, you are willing to lose your life. He, He reminds us also in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23 that any who would come after him, that any who would follow him must do what? deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Christ. Why? Because the following of Christ, that way is the way of suffering. Jesus says in John chapter 12 and verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Why? Because to follow Christ. You must be willing to lose your life. You must die to self. And oftentimes, this is literal, beloved. As we saw last week, following in the steps of Christ caused Stephen his life. His death was a a horrible death, indeed, and yet it was a glorious one, as we saw last week. And this week picks up and reminds us and shows us the fruit that came from the death of Stephen, reminding us of the words of Christ in John 12. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. Stephen died grain of wheat and he died. But if he dies, the Bible says it bears much fruit. And what we see in Acts chapter 8 is the fruit of the death of Stephen. It's remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Stephen dies like that grain of wheat but because he dies his life bears much fruit and we see it in a great persecution and we see it in a greater proclamation that's all we got just two points Bob just two points unless we got time for more but we're only planning two points a great persecution, and a greater proclamation. Notice how our text begins. It begins where, chapter 8 begins where chapter 7 la- left off. In fact, verse 1 of chapter 8 ought to be in chapter 7. If they ever decide to redo the chapters and verses in the Bible, I'm going to make that recommendation. That chapter, chapter 8, verse 1, should actually be in chapter 7. But nonetheless, they haven't asked me. Right, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Now apparently, apparently, as we saw last week, there was a young man, Saul, standing there, and he was the holder of the coats, the, the cloaks. He was the armor bearer of the sorts, as the Sanhedrin and the Jewish authorities put Stephen to death. But there was this young man, Saul, not just watching the cloaks, but Saul was there approving, giving assent to the death and execution, or better yet, the murder of Stephen. Now, he may not have actively actively participated. He may not have thrown any stones, but he was glad that Stephen was being put to death. And not only was he glad for it, but I think what the text here wants us to get and the sense that the text wants us to get is that Saul here was impressed. He was impressed with the zeal of the Sanhedrin. He was impressed with the zeal of the Jewish authorities as they executed and murdered Stephen. Impressed him so much had created in him a zeal for the same thing Saul who we know best as the apostle Paul but before that he was Saul we know him as Paul but we know him as one who was zealous for the gospel but you do understand that before he was zealous for the gospel Paul was zealous for the persecution of the gospel. Before he met Christ, he was zealous against Christ. There's a couple reasons why he was so zealous. The first reason is that Paul was, uh, Saul was zealous for God. He was zealous for God, the God that he thought he knew. He was zealous for him. And this is what Jesus told his disciples would happen in John chapter 16 and, and verse 2. Jesus tells his disciples, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And this is Saul. Saul really believes in his heart of hearts that he is offering service to God by eliminating these Christians or these followers of the way, as he would call them. Eliminating them because he was zealous for God. But he was not only zealous for God, Saul was zealous for himself. He was zealous for himself. He wanted to make a name and a reputation for himself. He wanted to be known as someone who was zealous for God. And he says this in Galatians chapter 1, in verse 13, where he begins to recount his life prior to coming to Christ, where he says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism." How I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my peers among my uh, countrymen, being more extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. I was advancing, it was my desire and goal to out advance all of my peers and my countrymen to show them that I was more zealous for the things of God than any of them. He have a, a young man who is very sincere. He wants to serve God. He has a zeal to serve God. He has a zeal for others to know what it means to have zeal for God. Saul was sincere and yet he was sincerely wrong because you do understand, beloved. Sincerity is not the test of truth. Sincerity is not the test of truth. All of us know people who are sincere. They're so sincere that we won't share the gospel with them. Sincere Jehovah's Witnesses. Sincere Mormons. Sincere Muslims, zealous for their God. Zealous for their God and so much that they outstretch you in their zeal. Seeking to live faithfully according to what they believe is the truth. Raising their families in what they believe is righteousness and truth. And you look at them and they put your life to shame. But you must understand, beloved, that sincerity is not the test of truth. There are a lot of sincere people in hell. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. And a lot of people are. And when Paul, when this Saul got saved, you know what his prayer was for his brothers and sisters according to the flesh? In Romans chapter 10 and verse 1, it says, Brothers, my brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, his people, is that they would be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. How many people do we know like that? They have a zeal for the things of God, but it is in ignorance and it is leading them to condemnation and damnation. And Paul said, my sincere desire for them is that they would be saved. Because they're not. Why? Because being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they do not submit to God's righteousness. That's what they do. That's what they do. Friends, you are not going to find more upstanding people than Mormons. Their lives depend on their being upstanding. And yet, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And they walk around all over the world seeking to establish their own righteousness because they refuse to submit to the righteousness that comes through Christ and Christ alone. Don't be deceived by sincerity. You can be sincere and be. Sincerely wrong. And Saul was. And Saul was very, very, very sincere. So much so that it led to this great persecution. This great persecution. What the death of Stephen did, beloved, is it whet the appetite for persecution. I mean, what the Sanhedrin did in a real sense is they set the bait. They set the bait. When they murdered Stephen, in front of this young man, they set the bait. In front of the zealous young man, they set the bait, and Saul took it. He took that bait and he ran with it. And he ran hard. He was an instrument of. Of suffering and pain and loss in the early church, beloved. But here's the thing to remember. As you're reading this text, this text reminds us that though Saul was this wicked instrument for loss and pain in the church, Saul was not sovereign, God is. Persecution is not sovereign. God is. For the persecution was great and it was fierce, but God was faithful and he's sovereign. And you see this in how the church was scattered. The church was scattered. Literally, the word is dispersed. It's like a police officer, like he might do in an unruly crowd with tear gas. He throws a tear gas bomb in the midst of the crowd, and they disperse. But there's one greater than tear gas has come in the midst. The trouble brought by Saul caused these early Christians to have to leave the comforts of Jerusalem. Now, this is not something that they would have preferred to do, beloved. Nobody, nobody wants to lose possessions. Nobody wants to lose houses. Nobody wants to lose family and, and friends and their comfort levels. But can I suggest to you this morning that maybe, just maybe, the church In Jerusalem had gotten too comfortable. Maybe they had gotten too comfortable and had forgotten the commands of Christ. Maybe they were meeting house to house and the houses were growing and the food was good and the fellowship was rich and the apostles doctrine was great and they just decided let's just sit here until Christ comes again. Let's build huge monuments and churches, and let's just sit here and gather. The teaching is great. The food is good. The fellowship is rich. And we are growing. Maybe they were, as it says in Amos chapter 6 and verse 1, at ease in Zion. You know what can happen? It can happen. It can happen to anyone. It can happen to you in your own personal journey with Christ. It can happen to us as a church. Perhaps that's why God moved us out of East Point Press. A need for us to remember that he is sovereign, that he is faithful, and we always need to have a mind of going, of going. So, what does he do? Scatters them. Scatters them. Because a the tendency at times is to get comfortable and complacent and to want to build up rather than reach out. To build up rather than reach out. Because God never intended for Jerusalem to be the beginning and the end of missions. Never intended that. Never intended for that to happen. And so, how does he get his people to know he means business? How does he get you to understand that he means business and he means what he says? Do you know that oftentimes he brings trouble, trial, persecution, and tribulation? So that you and I would understand that I mean business, God says. He shakes us up. Sins trials and and hardships and even persecution. And I'm confident that this is what God is doing because notice, when the persecution comes, notice where they go. The Bible says they left Jerusalem and where did they go? To Judea and Samaria. Why? That's what God had told them to do in the first place. In Acts chapter 1, he told them, You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, but not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria. They got stuck in Jerusalem. And God says, No, it's time to hit Judea, it's time to hit Samaria. I got many ways. Of making sure you do what I say. God scattered them. It's not, beloved, don't don't think for a moment. Saul is just the means. He's just an instrument. He's just the means. It is God who is scattering his people. He scattered the nations in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 9. Remember the Tower of Babel. He scattered the nations because of their sin. And he scattered the people all over the face of the earth. And now, here he is, scattering his people to the nations. Calling those nations that he scattered to faith in Christ who can forgive them for their sins. It is God who scattered the nations. It is God who has scattered his people. Persecution is not sovereign. God is. Troubles and trials are not sovereign. God is. You do understand that Christians never suffer in vain. Christians never suffer in vain, beloved. God is not arbitrary. He is not capricious. Like Jason Bourne, he doesn't do random. Scattering his people is not a random act. Your problems and the persecution that comes in your life has a purpose. God's ordained it that way. You do understand, don't you, that it was God who sent Joseph into Egypt. It was God who sent Joseph into Egypt. You do understand that it was God who hardened Pharaoh's heart. You do understand, don't you, that it was God who sent the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, into the wilderness where there was no food or water. You do understand, don't you, that it was God who sent Christ to the cross. Why? Why? Over and over again, so that his people would know that it's God who saves and it's God alone. It's God who redeems. It is God who keeps. It's God who satisfies. It's God and God alone. The central thing to remember, beloved, in the midst of trouble and trial and persecution is that God is in control. That is central. That is the most important thing to always be coming back to. God is in control. I was talking to a young man this week who's really going through a very hard spot in his life. Literally, literally being persecuted for the faith and the convictions that he holds in Jesus Christ. Literally. And that, is not, that is not normal because most of us get persecuted not for our faith but for our foolishness. And we, we like to believe it's for the faith but it's really for our own foolishness. But this brother really, really, really is going through it. Because he confesses Christ. Stands on that conviction. And as we were talking, and I'm listening to him, and I'm saying to myself, man, this is a tough spot. I really don't know what to say. He called me and said, Pastor, do you have any words of encouragement? And I said, man, that's tough. That's tough. And then he said, yeah, but Pastor, God is sovereign. And he's in control. And I said, there it is. That's it. He called to get encouragement from me. And there he is reminding me and encouraging me that in the midst of trouble and trial and persecution and distress, God is in control. And that's enough. That's enough. That's enough. It's in his hands. And the church that was scattered was in his hands, even as that church was being ravaged. It's hard, beloved. It's hard. Even in God's sovereignty, this church, this early church, was dealt a hard and difficult hand. The Bible says that Saul ravaged, he wreaked havoc. On the church. And and, and the thing is, is that Saul added insult to injury because they were still grieving Stephen. Even while they were grieving over Stephen, Saul went on the attack. Had this almost insatiable appetite for Christian blood. It's amazing. As the Bible says, what did he do? He went house to house, house to house, house to house. Even as they were meeting, he was undermining their meetings. They were meeting house to house, and Saul said, great, we'll just go house to house. He went house to house. You know what? He's an equal opportunity, persecutor. There's no chauvinism here. He took the women as well as the men. People like to say that Paul was a chauvinist. Is that right? Not when he was persecuting the church. You would think he would leave the women alone. Not all. His insatiable appetite for Christian blood. Neither men nor women were saved. Notice how. Paul would say it later on in his life in Acts chapter 22 and verse 4. I persecuted the way to death, he says. I persecuted the way to death. Binding and delivering to prison both men and women. I didn't care. I didn't care. Galatians chapter 1 again in verse 13. You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church and tried to destroy it. He was fierce. He was unrelenting. The church never had a more fierce and determined foe than Saul. But you know what, beloved? It's again the sovereignty of God. Saul was fighting a losing battle. He didn't know it until later on he came to realize it. He was fighting and losing battle. He was seeking to destroy the indestructible. He was trying to defeat the undefeatable. He was fighting literally against the promises of Christ, where Christ had promised his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is what Saul was fighting against. He Soon discovered what would be true throughout history. And this is the truth, beloved. When one Christian is destroyed, many more rise in his place. That is the testimony, the undeniable testimony of history. When one Christian is destroyed, many more rise in his place. Why? Because you can't kill the church because you can't kill Christ. And this is why despite all of this hellish persecution the proclamation was even greater. No matter how great the persecution, the proclamation, was even greater. You know what our text reminds us? Reminds us that in the midst of this great persecution, no matter how fierce and how great it was, the preaching remained faithful. Despite the trouble, despite the trial, The gospel was still being proclaimed just as God had ordained it. Persecution did nothing but produce more preaching. If preaching got them in trouble, all the trouble did was produce more preaching. Did you see that? They got in trouble, and as they got in trouble, they just preached more. And as they preached more, they got in more trouble. And as they got in more trouble, they preached more. But there's something different here. Notice something. Notice who preached. Notice who preached. Those who were scattered. Those who were scattered. Now, before the preaching and the evangelism had been the responsibility of the apostles, In Jerusalem, it was the apostles, it was John, it was James, it was Peter who were preaching in Jerusalem. But now, it becomes the responsibility of all. Now we see God's design for all to be witnesses and purveyors of the gospel of Christ. And Philip led the charge. Philip led the charge. Perhaps he was one of the pallbearers at Stephen's burial. He was definitely one of the seven who were called by the church to serve tables and to wait on the widows. Seeing, therefore, the faith and the courage of Stephen, here Philip not only Besides, it it was time to wait on tables, but now he understands that now it's time to take up the charge to proclaim the gospel. And he becomes literally known as Philip the Evangelist. You know in the Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, faithful dies in Vanity's Fair, and his death produced... The life of hopeful. Here, Stephen dies. And his life produces the life of Philip. Because, beloved, in the things of God, death in one produces life in another. And this is God's design. This is why the church cannot be destroyed. Because death in one produces life in others. It was the North African church father, the first and second century Tertullian, who said, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. Because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's the blood of the martyrs that becomes the seed of the church, beloved. And and so you look at this text and you might be tempted to believe that being scattered, they would be discouraged. Because that's what we would do. Woe with us. Lost my house. Lost my job. Lost my family. I lost my friends. I'm being scattered out to where I don't know anybody or know what to do. That's what we would do. That's not what they did. They were not discouraged. Far from it. Because they understood. They were spread to spread. They were spread so that they would spread. Spread. They saw this as an opportunity. Now, you can imagine that when the Samaritans saw these Christians coming into Samaria, they looked at them as refugees like we would look at. Who are these refugees coming in here? Oh, they're being persecuted in Jerusalem. Oh, they're religious refugees. They're political refugees. Well, beloved, not so fast. These Christians did not see themselves as refugees. They saw themselves as missionaries. Others may have saw them as refugees. They saw themselves as missionaries sent by God on mission. Now, this is what happens. We miss, we miss opportunities because, in the midst of our suffering and trial, we don't look. For the sovereign hand of God. And we don't ask the pertinent questions. What God are you leading me to do? Who in the midst of this situation. Do you want me to witness to. Concerning your grace and mercy. In the midst of you. Scattering the aspects Of my life. All over the ground. What is my mission? This is so important beloved. To see the hand of God. And to see the purposes of God. When John Piper got cancer. He wrote a little pamphlet. called don't waste your cancer. You know we could easily say. Don't waste your hardship. Don't waste your pain. Don't waste your persecution. The scattered Christians were not in despair because they saw the scattering as an opportunity to make much of Christ. You know, this is one of the reasons why God sends trouble. It's one of the reasons why God sends lean years. It's one of the reasons why God sends hardship. Because in those times, we are given open doors to the gospel that we would not normally have. It's why they come. Christians are always missionaries, beloved. This is why he put you where he put you. This is why difficulties be as they be. Wherever you are, wherever you are, your mission, wherever you are, no matter how difficult it is, your mission. It could be a home, God put you there, how difficult it is, God put you there so that you will show forth the praises of Christ. It's family members, it's job, it's school, it's doctor waiting rooms, it's emergency rooms it's bed sides, it's grave sides. Whatever the situation, you belong to Christ. You're there for a purpose. It's to make much of him. It is to point others in that same situation to Christ. My mom, when my mother had cancer, when she was going to chemotherapy every week, she would call me. And I would say, Mother, what are you doing? She said, I'm about to go out in the doctor's office and share Jesus with people. And I said, how you doing? She said, I'm doing great, but some of the people just aren't doing well at all. And I was reminded, you know, except she was going down there, except that she had this trial and sitting in that waiting room. She would not have known to share the gospel with those people. That's why God sent her there. To share the praises of Christ. This is what Paul learned, isn't it? In Philippians Chapter 1 and verse 12, where he tells the churches gathered in Philippi, I know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served for the advance of the gospel. That's it, beloved. That's it. Whatever is going on, can you say that? Whatever is happening in your life, can you say, I know that whatever is happening in my life is serving for the advancement of the gospel. why. That's why it comes. Can you show forth the glories of Christ in the midst of the trial? Yes. 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 Yes, you can. Yes. Yes, we can. Not only notice who preached, but notice also what was preached. Verse 5. What was preached, right? Philip went down to the city of Samaria. And what did he do? He proclaimed to them Christ. Simple enough. Simple enough. I mean, it just doesn't get any plainer than that. He went down to Samaria and he preached Jesus. No gimmicks, no games, just Jesus. That's all. That's all, beloved. That's all. Because you do understand that the Bible knows no faithful preaching apart from the preaching of the uniqueness and the sufficiency of Christ. And when they were on mission, they preached Jesus. Now, this is important. Is important. So important that Paul, on more than one occasion, would tell the Corinthians, listen, I, I, I come preaching Jesus. A lot of people want to preach a whole lot of other things, but I know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm going to preach Christ. And you do understand, beloved, there are a lot of things being preached today in places that got the word of church out front. that got very little to nothing to do with Jesus. They're preaching a whole lot of things. Churches are jam-packed this morning, so-called anyway, with people preaching prosperity foolishness. Tell that to Stephen. Tell Stephen about a name-it-and-claim-it gospel. Tell Stephen. About a health and wealth gospel. Tell it to the Christians in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 36, where it says, They suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated of whom this world was not worthy. Tell it to them the next time you want to stand in front of God's people and proclaim the foolishness of naming and claim it. and health and wealth and prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. They're not only preaching prosperity gospel, they're preaching a self-help or self-esteem gospel. It's out there, they they, they claim, they claim, they got church on, they got church in front. But you do understand, beloved, that it is not low self-esteem that the Bible says is working death in me, it's sin. It's not low self-esteem that is working death in me. It is sin. It is not low self-esteem that has brought death to everyone because everyone has low self-esteem. It is sin. Sin, beloved, is not overcome by my self-esteem. It is overcome by Christ's esteem. That will come by making much of Christ above all, and myself, as Paul says, as a servant, an unworthy servant. Christ is exalted, I am brought low, and it is well with my soul. Nonsense. The prosperity gospel, the nonsense of a self esteem gospel, the nonsense of motivational preaching. It's out there. It's out there. Gets you excited about your potential. Tells you that woman you can be loosed. And men, you can maximize your manhood. You do understand. beloved. This nonsense is nothing more than the schemes of the enemy. You do understand the Bible tells us that preaching Christ in these days would be less and less and less popular, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3. And therefore, we have to be careful that we don't fall prey to the spirit of this age, this fleshly and this fanciful preaching. But we preach Christ, insist upon it, demand it. These early Christians preached Jesus. They didn't get in trouble because they were preaching health and wealth. They got in trouble because they were preaching Christ. They didn't get in trouble because they were going around giving motivational speeches. They got in trouble because they were preaching Jesus. What is preaching Jesus? I'm glad you asked preaching Jesus is to preach salvation in him and him alone. It is a call, men and women, to repent of sin, sin that the world doesn't want to call sin, homosexuality, abortion, greed, and anger, and racism, and selfishness, and pride, being willing to proclaim that in the midst of that, Christ is sufficient to forgive you of all your sin and to fill you with the satisfaction that only comes with him as you live in an unsatisfying world. That's preaching Christ, beloved. And you do understand that preaching Christ may mean that East Point Church may not be filled with thousands and thousands, so be it. We'll preach Jesus. We'll preach Christ. Preaching Christ may mean that you lose friendships and relationships. So be it. We'll preach Christ. Preaching Christ may mean that you suffer loss and being ostracized at school and at work. So be it. We'll preach Christ. Preaching Christ. Preaching Christ and the desire and the need and the importance and understanding that this is the mission means that Brittany and others will stand across from abortion clinics and call men and women to repentance and faith in Christ. Not because they need a health and wealth gospel, but because they need Jesus. It means that Elder Wooden and others will go down on town at five points and stand on a corner and risk being rejected and preach the gospel, not because people need to be pulled up by their own bootstraps, but because they need Jesus. You do understand, you do understand beloved, that today, today, I stand here and preach freely and without fear of reprisal. But that may not always be the case. And if it ever stops being the case, if it ever stops being that we can preach and proclaim Christ without reprisal, if it ever comes the day that to open our mouth and preach Christ will cause us the loss of our possessions and even the loss of life let us say that good and kindreds go this mortal life also the body they may kill but Christ abideth still because his truth endures forever where one dies many, many, many will rise in his place And so we preach Christ. Let us, let us, beloved. Let us, let us make sure that the early Christians didn't die in vain. But let us, for their sake, preach Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this morning, indeed, we are humbled by the testimony of your servants that though they were scattered, yet they preached. Though they were persecuted, yet they preached. Though they were threatened, yet they proclaimed Jesus. May we, Lord, may we, Lord, be so faithful. This day and always, we pray in Jesus our Savior.
0: Amen.